Ladies and gentlemen, leaders and non-leaders alike, thank you for tuning in. This is the Rooted Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Panetta. As always, we are in studio, downtown Salem, Oregon. It is so wonderful to be in studio today. I'm alone, but today's episode was pre-recorded and we had three of us in here. And so I want to give a little forecast on what you can expect from that episode because it was a, it was a big one. We had a we had a household name in studio with us uh, last week and he was actually with us all day. So before I introduce who that is, uh, first, I just want to say, as always, the Rooted Leadership Podcast is part of the Groundwork Leadership Institute. And we created this podcast in an effort to become an institute. And part of becoming an institute is to house knowledge and information. And so we don't claim to know everything, but we believe that we can gather all of the necessary information that our community needs to cultivate leaders, to build leaders, but just to be a better community in general. And so this podcast is not solely for leaders. I know the title is leadership, a leadership podcast, but it's for anyone and everyone. In fact, one of our most recent episodes was three former high school kids telling us about their class and their experience around outward mindset. So again, this, this podcast is for everybody and all, but specifically, you know, leaders are going to glean uh, a little bit more from this as obviously we dive into leadership concepts. So back to our guest. So for our Leadership Institute, every month we have a session. And every session we have a different instructor. We usually have a guest speaker, presenter from the community, and then folks from the outside. And we've had some of those people on a few episodes. We've had Chad Ford, uh, who's an episode er earlier on. We had Melissa Schilling, right? Chad Ford is the author of Dangerous Love, okay? Um, massive following in the peace building and conflict resolution world. And then we have Melissa Schilling, who's a professor at NYU, one of the leaders on innovation and has one of the number one selling textbooks in the world on innovation. So we've had we've had them, we've had several others as participants, well not participants but guest speakers and guest presenters for Groundwork our Leadership Institute, but this month December was our last month so our our current cohort graduated if you will. They they moved on. And there's going to be another episode where perhaps we dive into that in a little bit a little bit more thoroughly and talk about the whole experience of of the year, given this was our first year, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more. But we had a, a banquet, and it was all virtual, and so it was it was really well done. We had a partner in the community really help us set it up so that it was. I mean, it looked like a it looked like a, a legitimate talk show. I mean, it was very well done. We were proud on how it turned out. A great team effort. But for the banquet, this virtual banquet, we had a keynote speaker. And so we uh, have been looking for who would be a great fit for this for several months. We landed on Mike Abrashoff. So, you know, you can Google him and find out plenty. And I'll give him a brief intro in this recording that I'm going to play here in a second. Uh, and he'll introduce himself further. But Mike Abrashoff, formal, former captain in the Navy, he took over the USS Benfold, which was one of the worst performing ships in the Navy, turned it around to become one of the best in just 12 months, right? Just unheard of. Completely went against the grain on what is typical in military and in the Navy. And he didn't rub anybody the wrong way. It's not like he was defying his superiors. He wasn't. He was making them happy because he was performing so well. But culturally, he went against quite a few different things. And so his book, one of his top, you know, one of his top selling books is It's Your Ship, 
uh, great book. And Mike is truly a great individual. I got to spend the whole day with him. He spoke to three different groups and did a podcast with us before he was even the keynote speaker that evening at our banquet. So I got to hear a lot from him, a lot of the same stories. Um, really incredible person, great story to tell. Recommend the book, recommend him as a speaker, a presenter, a guest anywhere. Before uh, I turn it over to our recording, I do want to inform all of you we were in the studio together. And so we all had masks on. And so uh, the voices are a little bit more muffled than usual, we'll say. Uh, but still, still, you know, you can still hear and, and it still sounds fine. But I just want to give you a heads up. But this is an episode you don't want to miss. Mike Abershoff, again, household name, just an incredible person uh, to learn from. So with that, uh, I will play the recording. Enjoy. Okay, so we have a special guest today. Uh, he's actually live in studio, which is rare lately. We've been doing most of our episodes all on Zoom or the or a phone call, so it's kind of fun to have us in studio, all masked up. Uh, but we're we're here, and it's and we're happy to be happy to do it. Uh, so today is an important day for our leaders in our institute. It's kind of, kind of sounds silly, Salam, but it's our graduation day. Uh, of course, all of our leaders this year are all you know C-suite level leaders, but it's a completion day for them, and so we're we're getting ready for our banquet. And thus, we have a special guest in town who's actually our keynote speaker tonight, Mike Abershoff, uh, the author of uh, a few books. And Mike, jump in and correct me if I ever get any of them wrong. But the the most the best sell the bestseller is "It's Your Ship." Correct. And when was that? When did that come out? It came out in uh, '02. Okay, 2002. Awesome. Uh, and Mike speaks all over. Obviously, if you've read his book, It's Your Ship, a former captain uh, in the Navy, turned around one of the worst performing ships uh, to become uh, the best. And it's a really remarkable story. We've already heard him speak a couple times this morning here and incredible stories, just an incredible um, energy around you. So I look forward to to our listeners getting the chance to to hear from you. Happy to be here, Chris. Yeah. So I, with that, you know, I mentioned before, I don't want to do a whole lot of talking today because I just want to want everybody to be able to learn from you. Uh, but run with that. Tell us a little bit more about yourself, your journey, what what got you to to the point of where you're at now. And, and we'll just, we'll take it from there and we'll ask questions along the way. Well, I went to the Naval Academy and I played football there. Um, mediocre as a football player. So it was a good thing I had a day job when I graduated. But I spent my time coming up through the ranks, uh, taking on progressively more complex assignments. And then um, the big assignment was when I get command of a destroyer in the Navy, um, cost over $2 billion to build, had a crew of 310, and it was underperforming. And I couldn't change um, my sailors. I couldn't replace them. I couldn't choose our missions. I couldn't ask for more money. And so what I decided to change was myself and how I show up to the people I'm trying to lead and to try to connect with them and get them to think that I care about them and their own journey. And what happened by working together as a team, uh, in 15 months, we got the trophy for being the best ship in the Pacific fleet. And uh, years three and four later, we got the award for being the best ship in the entire U.S. Navy. And it wasn't me. I didn't do it. All I did was cause the crew to believe in themselves and to take pride in themselves and to take ownership and accountability and they're the ones who delivered the results. So this, you know, this morning when when you were speaking to to one of the groups that we had you with, uh, that's what you led with that concept of changing yourself. 
And to me, that's a, a really powerful one. That's something we often talk about uh, here at Groundwork and with our leaders is the importance of accountability. But we start accountability with that means that you have to be willing to change your, yourself uh, first. Uh, you need to be the one willing to to look in the mirror um, and uh, take take the take the blame. Um, you know, look at the uncomfortable uh, aspects of of our leadership and do something about it. And so, speak more to that if if you can of of why that's so important in leadership and what it did for uh, your crew, for your the people that you you led. So prior to I haven't told you this this morning, but um, prior to taking command of the ship, I lost a relationship with somebody I care deeply for. And when I asked why, um, the answer was, you don't listen. And so I was angry for three months. And then after three months, it hit me, you know what? I don't listen. Um, I'd like to transmit, as you get more senior, as you get more older, as you have more experiences, you tend to listen less and transmit more. And I didn't realize how off-putting that had become until it affected me personally. So when I get command of the ship, one of the worst ships in the Navy, I decided to stop barking orders and stop transmitting and instead listen to the needs of the sailors and their ideas on how to improve it. So I did something that was never done before. I interviewed every sailor on the ship individually, all 310 of them. I got to know their names, their spouses' names, their children's names. And I found out what they were most proud of in their lives. I found out what they wanted to do with their journey and their own career goals. And so for the first time in my life, I was truly listening to the messages they were trying to send me. And then I could use that to play it back to them and connect it to our purpose so that everything they did, they knew was uh, going to help us accomplish a higher level of performance and readiness. Yeah. So, um, you know, life is a journey. None of us are born leaders. None of us are perfect leaders. Uh, none of us have perfect relationships. And so you, it's a continuous learning process. And if you're willing to put yourself out there and admit you're not perfect, but that it's a, a journey and learn from your mistakes and, and, and improve upon uh, what you're doing. Um, that's how you get the satisfaction out of both work and life, in my opinion. So, Mike, I'm, I'm really curious about that. And I want to come back to uh, the statement that you just said about us not being born leaders um, and not being perfect leaders. But if you could hold on to that thought, I want to ask you a question first about four words of wisdom that you left with us this morning in your webinar. And that is, what do you think? So, I'm curious about your transformation as a leader, growing and going, you know, growing through the ranks of the the military in general. Uh, you're rewarded for your knowledge, for your competence, for your command, for your ability to get people to do things, essentially telling people what to do, how to do it, when to do it, to becoming transformed into this listener that you just described. And using these words, what do you think? What did it take for you personally and professionally to become the leader that you are today and the one that you describe in your book? Well, to get selected for command of a ship in the Navy, it's highly competitive, as you might imagine. And first and foremost, you have to be technically competent at what you do. And so everything, every, our future is based on that 
base level experience of technical competence. And so then as you get more more experience with your technical competence, you tend to think you know more than everybody else. And so as a result, I found myself when people were talking, I would cut them off and give them the answer before they were even able to finish the sentence. And so it's a it was a bad situation as a bad habit that I allowed myself to get into. And so I have to, it's, it's not a gift that I was born with to listen. It's something that I have to consciously work at. And so um, as a way to catch myself from telling people what the answer is, instead I would say, well, what do you think? If you own this ship, how would you do this? And one sailor said, nobody's ever asked me to think before. And I said, well, I'm asking you to think. If you own this, how would you do it? He said, well, this is what I do. I said, do it. He turned in flawless results. He turned in better results than if I had told him how to do it. So part of my learning experience was knowing that I don't have all the answers. And instead, if I get people involved, get them to think and get them to have confidence in themselves, they can raise their own level of performance and help me drive the overall performance of the ship. So you gave people an opportunity to lead, in, in essence, uh, on the ship. And um, how would you define leadership in a context like that? You know, everybody has their own definition of leadership, but it's having a baseline level of technical competence. And Lord knows I didn't know every aspect of the ship. I didn't know how every electron powered a piece of equipment that could send a missile a thousand miles away. But I knew enough to have people who knew how to do that. And I had to know when to get involved in that process. So leadership is, is having that ability to have a broad overview of the mission, but also then to connect people to purpose and get them to take tremendous ownership and become engaged to the point where everything we do adds to the performance and does not detract from it. And so it's getting rid of the weeds so that we can just compound that performance every day. And a great leader, in my opinion, has the vision to know where they or an organization needs to go and then how to inspire people to help you achieve that vision. You know, what I'm, what I'm hearing, um, and this is such a simple concept, but I think that it's, it's vital for, for leaders. You know, we started with this idea of changing yourself first. I think a lot of people come to realizations of how they can change, but, uh, I mean, you backed it up immediately. (laughs) And, uh, so having the desire to change or seeing where we can change obviously isn't enough if we're not willing to to back it up. And for you, you know, there was that moment where you, you said, uh, you know, you're the person before you, the commander before you was cheered off of, off of the ship when they changed command. And, uh, you know, you kind of had this moment of, you know, here's an opportunity. Um, it could be a bit daunting. Obviously you're coming into one of the worst ships, you know, in the Navy, um, with a crew that just cheered their former commanding officer, um, off of the, the ship. Um, but here's an opportunity of, like you said, how can I change, but immediately backing it up with getting to know each one of your, uh, your crew members, um, by 
interviewing them um, by asking them questions. I love the question, um, and this the only thing underlined on my page page of notes is what you know what makes you what are you proud of in your life. Um, I think that that can be incredibly enlightening and insightful things that we can learn um, from people when when we do that. All because it started with this desire of changing ourselves first and then doing something about it. Can you share a little bit? or any stories that you have or examples of some of those interactions? Um, not just where you asked, what do you think we should do about this problem or that problem? But when you were able to ask that question of what are you proud of in your life? What, what did you notice? Um, what did you learn from others? How did it change you? Well, let me uh, start off with a different story, Chris. Um, it was the 2nd of August, 1990. And I was stationed on a different ship, a hundred miles south of Kuwait in the Northern Persian Gulf. The morning Saddam invaded and at 4.30 that morning, we detected 21 unknown fighters coming directly at our ship. And we sound the general quarters alarm, and I get to my radar screen, and I'm looking at these 21 fighters, and I'm thinking, we'll be able to shoot down many of them, but I gave us only a 50% chance of being able to shoot down all 21. And in my line of work, you know, you have to be right 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. And the first thought that went through my mind that morning was my life insurance is paid up and my will is up to date. And for several tense moments, we tracked these fighters as they got closer and closer. And just as we were getting ready to fire the first missile at them, they hung a right turn into Saudi Arabia, and we later found out it was the Kuwaiti Air Force fleeing Kuwait that morning. But for several tense minutes, we thought we were the ones who were under attack. And after the excitement died down, um, it hit me, uh, I'm not happy with only a 50% chance of survival. Mm -hmm. I wonder what we could have or should have been doing while we had the opportunity to put ourselves in a position to control our own destiny. And so I'm a very competitive person. I, if I'm going to do something, I want to be the best at, and I'm going to uh, be on a Naval ship. I want that ship to be the best because it's about controlling our own destiny. And what drove me at this point, wasn't my next promotion. It was never having to write the parents of any of my sailors telling them their sons or daughters weren't coming home. So everything we did on that ship was geared towards uh, improving our combat readiness so that we would control our own destiny if we ever get called into combat. And so the interviewing of every sailor, getting to know them, their names, what their career goals were, was all designed to help them, to get them to know that we appreciate them and that they are part of the team and that we can't do this unless all 310 people are, are delivering excellence. So that's um, the rationale behind everything we did. And if I have to change myself in order to be the best ship that controls our own destiny, I will do that all day long. I will change to adapt to my people so that I can remove any inefficiencies that I'm creating so that they can focus solely on performance. And so uh, it all starts uh, with myself and with every leader, it starts with them that they need to realize the tremendous impact that they have. And if they, induce problems through their ego Mm -hmm. or their self-promotion that detracts from the overall 
mission and the performance of the organization. If I can uh, just follow up on that really quickly. So, Mike, you talked about um, the interaction that you had with the with the 310 sailors. You got to know them as individuals. Um, we call that actually seeing people in the rooted leadership framework, and that's part of the soil component of that of that framework. Um, so what I'm curious about is by seeing people, and I think that was your intention, is to recognize them, to honor them, to appreciate them. Uh, you talked earlier about, about um, making your organization uh, intellectually curious. Was that part of the process of seeing people and is, is promote, uh, promoting that sense of intellectual curiosity on their part and the organization uh, was designed to give you better results? So... I firmly believe that the people who know best how to improve an organization are the ones on the front line doing the work. And I don't need to bring in an outside consultant to tell me how to improve efficiency when I can just go right to the people themselves. So in the interviews, I asked sailors, uh, I, I said to my sailors, I don't care what your age is. I don't care what your rank is. I don't care how long you've been here. You can come to work every day in challenge, every process, every procedure, every custom, every tradition. And if you have an idea how to improve something 1%, I want to hear from you. So the interviews were designed to put a process in place to encourage people to report not only inefficiencies, but how to improve processes. And it's the Navy. I 320,000 people. I can't change the Navy. I can change my own little piece of it. 1% a day. And if we can improve 1% a day, we are going to be the leader in our industry. Um, I have a couple of other notes here from uh, your presentation this morning. Um, one thing that really stuck out to me, which I didn't know, um, obviously it, it applies to everything we're discussing, was the story of, uh, of Benfold. Um, and the lesson that you kind of ended with there was, you know, you never go wrong by doing the right thing. Um, and obviously you, you leveraged the incredible story of, of, of this soldier uh, to inspire your, your, your crew, but to, to reiterate, uh, you know, you never go wrong by, by doing the right thing. And I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit more. So my ship was USS Benfold, and it was named after Edward C. Benfold, who was a medic in the Korean War. And one afternoon, he was tending to two wounded Marines in a foxhole whenever, uh, whenever uh, two enemy soldiers uh, stormed the foxhole, throwing grenades into it. And at the age of 21, Edward Benfold decided he was going to become a leader. And he picked up those grenades. He stormed the oncoming enemy soldiers, blowing them up, blowing himself up in the process, but saving the lives of those two wounded Marines who I used to take to sea on his ship every six months or so. And in addition to naming a ship after him, he was also awarded the Medal of Honor. And what's unique, uh, Edward Benfold came from a small town in New Jersey, a place called Audubon, New Jersey. And they happened to have two other Medal of Honor winners from Audubon for a total of three, which makes them the highest per capita Medal of Honor winning city in the entire United States. And the Navy has named a ship after the second of three Medal of Honor winners. And so I used to say to my sailors, make sure Edward Benfold is smiling down upon us today. And the other thing I would say to him, you never go wrong when you do the right thing. And the rest of that story was, 
I would say to my sailors, if what you're doing appeared on the front page of the Washington Post tomorrow, would you be proud or embarrassed? If you're embarrassed, don't do it. And if you're proud, I'll support you 100% of the time. And that was the yardstick. Would you be proud if your actions appeared on the front page of the newspaper tomorrow? And I'm never going to criticize you, you know, if, if what you're doing makes us proud. But what would you say to, to leaders, um, Mike, that get assigned to an organization, get assigned to a division, a team, and they feel stuck with the people that they have, the mission that they have, the resources that they have? Uh, you talked a little bit about it this morning. Sometimes, you know, we find ourselves becoming a victim of our own choosing. And we feel like we just can't do anything with this. And therefore, we're doomed to fail. So what kind of advice and what types of experiences have you had? Sounds like your assignment was kind of similar to that in some ways. People thought that that tour would be the end of the road for me. That I wasn't smart enough to turn that ship around. And I didn't. The crew turned it around. But, um, you know, there was a lot at stake. And I could have acted like I was a victim. Oh, I'm, I'm given the worst ship, a surly crew, um, no budget. But instead of acting like I'm a victim, I decided to focus on the things I could influence. And I don't need anybody's permission to create a great culture. I don't need anybody's permission to treat people with respect and dignity and in a manner in which I myself want to be treated. I don't need anybody's permission to interview every sailor and connect with them and get them to understand why what we are doing is important. And sure, uh, we don't get all the resources we want or need. And sure, we don't get to choose our missions. I mean, we go to some places in the world that aren't, you know, sitting on a at a five-star hotel at a beach. You know, we generally go to the exact opposite of that. So uh, we can either be victims or we can uh, make it work to our advantage and make the best of it. And so um, while working hard, we also brought in time to enjoy ourselves. Um, we would have um, Thursday afternoon jazz on the flight deck. And we're out there listening to jazz. And um, a sailor comes up to me and says, you know, Captain, this would be kind of cool if we could smoke cigars <clears throat> while listening to jazz. So it was now Thursday afternoon, uh, sunset, a cigar and jazz. So we had to, and part of our culture was to be the best at everything we did, including smoking the best cigars the world has to offer. <laughs> and the problem is we are not allowed to buy them inside the United States. So whenever we pulled into a foreign port, we would load the ship out with cigars from this country I'm not authorized to mention. And every Thursday night, men and women would stand on that flight deck smoking cigars, listening to jazz. And we created our own five-star resort out of nothing because it's all in our heads. It's a mindset. It's a mindset. Um, so people felt honored and proud to be part uh, of a team that would do that. Every other Friday night, we'd have happy hour. And I can't serve alcohol on a ship, but, you know, we can have steamship round, buffalo wing, shrimp, something different that nobody's ever done before. And we bought a karaoke machine. And the only two rules on karaoke night was one, the captain was not allowed to sing. <laughs> and some of your listeners may be offended by this, 
but there would be no country music on my show. <laughs> so aside from the captain not singing and no country music, it was a great happy hour. <laughs> Um, this, and this all leads up to, uh, you know, something else that you said that I've heard you say today, but, uh, you know, if your community and in your case, your, your, you know, your crew, uh, if they know that you care about them, that they'll follow you into battle, uh, you know, what, what does that look like for, you know, our everyday leader, uh, out in our communities right now? Because, uh, it's not the same battle that they would be going into, you know, as a literal battle, perhaps that a, a soldier would would go into. Um, but there's there's a lot going on in people's lives right now, um, uh, and everybody's affected. And so, whether we're using this term "battle" as a metaphor of just our everyday work, or you know, more literal that there's a battle every day uh, in in our life, um, what are the implications for our everyday leader to to think that way, um, that that we're going into battle and our, our organization, our community um, is either with us or, or against us. Uh, uh, speak to that if you can. Well, there's a lot to be down about this year. And, and especially in this community, you know, with the tragedy of this summer. And if we're down, our people are going to be down as well. And I chose to talk about those issues rather than try to sweep them under the rug. And so when I start a business call with my team, uh, I always ask, how are things going on in their lives right now? Because, you know, it turns out, uh, you know, somebody has an aging parent who's in the hospital with COVID. And of course, that's a distraction for them. It's a huge concern. And if I know that, then I know not to make certain jokes or light of situations, or it changes how I interact with that person to come across a little bit more empathetic due to the struggle that they're going through right now. And so in these pandemic times, when we have to deal with people virtually, I think it's even more important to take some time and say, Hey, how are things going? What's uh, every, anything I can help you with? Anything you'd like to share with me? And if nope, I didn't force people to share things with me. And it's not an interrogation, but more a conversation that I genuinely care about what's going on in your lives. And if I can do anything to help you, I will. So in these tough times, I think it's even more important for leaders to take that time uh, to find out what truly is going on in people's lives, like homeschooling kids now mm -hmm. that they're not prepared for whilst, while uh, still having to work. And that's, that's an issue. Um, and so I think a leader has to address the good, the bad, and the ugly, and give people hope and give people a way out, especially when we're going through these tough times. And if you understand the journey that your team is going through personally, I think it helps you become a more empathetic leader that they will then appreciate that you care about them. Yeah, certainly. It certainly changes us. Um, you know, uh, the, the humanity of others, uh, you know, I believe when we see it, um, you know, it changes, it changes us, uh, you know, in, in some pretty authentic and, and deep ways, um, that oftentimes we might stay, res we, we might stay resistant to at first. Um, so I, I think that's, I think that's, uh, a really important piece to, to, um, what you've been sharing with us today. And something I was thinking about as you were 
talking about, you know, this, this change that you started to completely shift uh, your, your crew on when you first joined, because they weren't used to it. They were obviously used to <laughs> things being how they were previously. Um, and, you know, I do a lot of work in conflict. And oftentimes I see this dynamic where, you know, if there's two people in conflict, they give each other a version of themselves that they're used to responding to. And so when one of them actually does change, the other one doesn't always think they're serious at first because uh, they're so used to a different version of them. You know, if my wife's used to the angry, upset version of me, I can't just all of a sudden be wonderful because she's. It will be hard for her to. She'll think to, something's wrong. She thinks something's wrong. So or you're having an affair. Or yeah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, I was thinking the same thing with the with uh, your ship. You know, when you did change things and you started to actually get to know each one of your. Uh, your sailors, um, I mean, how was it received at first? Because there had to have been some, this isn't normal, you know? This there, has never happened for me before. There was disbelief. Um, they thought it was flavor of the month. Hmm. And everybody thought I would get frustrated and go back to the old way of doing things. And one of my biggest mistakes when I started the interviews is I bypassed the officers and chiefs. And I was new and nobody trusted me. And it took a month for the command master chief to get up the courage to come tell me that the officers and chiefs weren't with me. And the old me would have blamed them for being resistant to change. The new me said, why aren't they with me? What did I do wrong? And I realized that I never got them together to tell them what it was I was trying to accomplish. And they were fearful. They didn't want me talking to their people. They thought I was tolerating narking and backstabbing and that they'd read about it on their in annual evaluations and that their careers would be over. Yeah. And I had nothing of the sort. I, I did not tolerate narking and backstabbing in these interviews. And so once I realized I failed to communicate to the officers and chiefs, I got them together and said, look, folks, I'm not here to undermine you. I'm here to give you a happy and contented workforce. Here are the questions. What do you like most about this ship? What do you like least? What would you change if you were the captain? Go ahead and ask them before they ever come up to see me. I'm authorizing you to make the change. And suddenly they realized I was serious about this and that they started doing it and they started feeling better about themselves because they were no longer just managing. They were now leading. Mm -hmm. And because their workers were now engaged, things were happening easier and not having to go back and redo them because of poor quality. So their lives as supervisors improved. When they had an when they had an engaged workforce, the chiefs became my biggest supporters on their ship, after being the biggest detractors at the beginning. One of the things that you talked about this morning in the webinar, Mike, was this sense of self awareness as an attribute of leadership, of course. So, is that something that just organically um, sort of emerged within you and you became a self-aware leader and you started to take others' needs and, and interest into consideration? Or were there some experiences or some learning along the way that made you a self-aware, self-conscious leader? So after I saw my predecessor getting cheered off the ship, it hit me, I can't order excellence sitting in the captain's chair. So I spent my days walking around, talking to sailors, and for the first time listening to them, and I came across a sailor one day and he says, Captain, we have a term to describe the organization on this ship. This ship is like a tree full of monkeys. He said, you're the monkey at the top of the tree. On every branch, there's different levels of monkeys. And we're the monkeys in the bottom branch. 
He said, whenever you look down from the top of the tree, all you ever see are smiling faces coming at you. When we look up from the bottom branch, we have an entirely different view of the organization. And when that sailor said that to me, I put myself 15 years previous on the bottom branch, looking up and having the same view. But it's funny, as you get promoted, you lose that view of the people on the bottom branch. So that's where the self-awareness for me came in is to view myself through the eyes of the people I'm trying to influence. And I carry that with me today in my private practice, put myself in their shoes um, and view my operation through their eyes. And am I providing the best possible experience? And it's worked well for me. Yeah. And, um, you know, building on that and and the story that you were sharing before about, um, you know, looping your your uh the other leaders in on on what you were trying to do and with the interviews uh you know you mentioned communication and obviously communication is a a word that's tossed around and thrown around in in life in general but especially in leadership as something important right but i remember you know one of the one of the most one of the highest uh topics of feedback or not feedback advice that i got when i was married you know our wedding reception and everybody comes in and, and all these people that you don't really know, they're just family friends. Uh, and obviously a lot of people that are much older that are, have been married for a long time, you know, friends of my parents, they would all lean in and most of them would say, remember to communicate. It's all about communication. Well, it didn't take long, you know, in the first couple of years, sorry, months of marriage, that communication wasn't working (laughs) because when I was communicating, when I was upset, it didn't really matter uh, because I was communicating in hurtful and, and harmful ways and, and my wife towards me. So communication wasn't the answer uh, by itself. And so I, I'm really interested in, in you know, what, what you said about communication is we can't, we cannot always communicate in our own language. And so that's what I was thinking of when you said that this morning is, um, you know, if I'm communicating in my own language of how I like to things to be done or how I like to explain things and I'm not willing to communicate in somebody else's language, not a literal language, obviously, uh, then the communication doesn't really work. And so therefore uh, communication isn't, isn't the answer if I'm not willing to change myself first. So share a little bit more about that if you can, of, of what you mean by we cannot always communicate in our own language. So when that sailor said it to me, it hit me for the first time. I've got a multi-generational workforce The average age is 23 and a half years old, but I've got people in their 50s on the ship. I've got men and women. I've got a multi, it's multiracial, whites, African-Americans, Asians, you name it. It's, it's It's literally a cross section of society that are serving in our military. And when that sailor said that to me, gee, each group speaks a different language. And I have to put myself in their shoes and view the operation through their eyes and then play back to them in a language that they understand about where we're going. And you're right, it's mostly the English language, but I, you know, 15% of my crew, English was their second language. Mm -hmm. So I had to take that into account as well to make sure they understood exactly what I'm, I'm trying to get across. But if you take the time to understand the culture of the people and their age demographics, 
it alters the nuances of how you get the message across. And the more effective you are at doing that, the better buy-in you get. And it was always connecting them to our purpose. And the more I can make that connection, the better buy-in I get. So how, how uh, you know, authenticity is one of the attributes of leadership that, that we often talk about. So how do you do that with that authenticity? Um, and, and to have the 315, 310 people with different cultures, language, backgrounds, et cetera, uh, believe you as their leader and believe that you have their best interest in mind as you fulfill the mission that you're all working towards. So let me tell you another defining moment on the ship. It was the big day we had left San Diego en route to the Middle East on our first deployment. And the first seven days of the transit were spent doing a major exercise designed to increase our ability to defend ourselves. And we're doing this exercise with two other ships, USS Harry W. Hill, USS Gary. The admirals embarked on Harry W. Hill leading the exercise. And the plan was for the exercise to be over the following Friday afternoon at 5 p.m., at which point we were to enter Pearl Harbor and spend the night on Waikiki Beach. Well, the way we enter port in the Navy is by the date of rank of the senior officer on each ship. The Admiral was on Harry W. Hill. They were to go in first. By date of rank, I was the, the junior captain in the entire Pacific Fleet at the time. We would always go in last. Well, instead of being over at 5 o'clock that Friday, the exercise was unexpectedly over at 9 a.m. We had achieved all the objectives. The Admiral declares it a success. We are sitting off the coast of Waikiki, steaming in circles, wasting fuel, waiting for 5 o'clock to roll around, because that's what the plan called for. And through my binoculars, I could see tourists on the beach in Waikiki. And I'm here thinking, this is stupid. What are we doing out here when we could be on the beach? So I called the captain of the Harry W. Hill. I'm calling him on an encrypted satellite voice radio. Any sailor on any of the three ships can punch in the button and listen to the conversation. And I said to him, why don't you ask the admiral if we could go in early? He said, I can't. I've got an engineering problem. I can only fix it at sea. I've got to stay out. I called the captain of the second ship, who's a top-down traditionalist. He excoriated me publicly on the radio for sailors on all three ships to hear, do not challenge the plane, you're going in last. So I called the admiral, and by the tone of his voice, I knew he was listening. And in a very gruff manner, he demanded to know why he should grant Benfold something he's not granting the other two ships. I said, well, sir, the exercise is over early. We're out here steaming in circles, wasting fuel, wasting taxpayers' money. I've got a piece of broken equipment I can only fix in port. And I said, reason number three, I want to put my crew on the beach early in Waikiki today. To everybody's utter amazement, he said, permission granted. I was two decks above the operations center where 30 sailors were on watch. And when he said permission granted, I could hear cheering through two decks of steel. <laughs> now, an Arleigh Burke class destroyer has four engines. And our normal configuration is only to steam on one engine because it's our most fuel efficient. We can do up to 18 knots on one engine. And unless it's an emergency, everywhere we travel in the world, we're programmed 18 knots or less. But you can do 24 knots on two engines and use twice the amount of fuel. 
you can do 27 knots on three engines and you can do 31 knots on four engines. When the Admiral said permission granted, I put all four engines online, <laughs> came up to full power. When an Arleigh Burke class destroyer is at full power, it's a, it's a sight to behold. It kicks up a rooster tail of water that's two stories high. The whole ship vibrates from the power of the four engines. We scream into Pearl Harbor, tied up by 1015, cruise off the ship by 1045, on their way to Waikiki. Never did save taxpayers one drop of fuel that day. Next day, we get the ship underway to continue our transit to the Middle East. And the first sailor comes up for his interview. And he says, you know, Captain, it seems to us, the crew, that you don't care if you ever get promoted again. And I said, what on earth are you talking about? He said, what you did for us yesterday, you had nothing to gain. You did it for us. We want you to know we got your back. And that was the day that the crew started to trust me. And when your people trust you and your organization, that is the foundation upon which you can achieve greatness and overcome limitations. And trust is like a bank account. You got to make deposits each and every day. And sure, there are going to be some tough times when you have to tell your people they need to reach down deep to meet a commitment. But as long as that respect and trust is there, they will do it. What did, uh, you know, what did that, um, that moment, what did that mean to you when you heard that come out of his mouth? It was an aha moment that I'd finally gotten the point across that this is not flavor of the month. I'm not going to tire of it. And um, I knew I had their hearts and loyalties at that moment. Yeah. And not only that, when we pulled into other foreign ports, and I've never said any, this to anybody before, sailors off the other ships would come up to me and say, we wish you were our captain. <laughs> so it was noticeable to other ships. Yeah, it sticks out. It, it did stick out. Great story. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. You know, some of the other questions that we have just always on the docket in these, um, we usually don't get around to asking them, but uh, um, it one of our, and you don't have to share the same story that you shared at our lunch we were just at, but it really got me thinking uh, just about the power of, of thinking of of our some of our past weaknesses or, or failures because it helps us so much going forward. Um, and I just wanted to ask you, you know, in your in your career, obviously, which has been uh, a, a successful one and something that um, you've been able to leverage to inspire and, and motivate leaders and organizations all over um, and be helpful to so many people. What have been some of your uh, failures? Uh, failures might be the wrong word, but the weaknesses that you've seen along the way, things about about you that you've realized that you could change, um, um, things that you wish you could go back and 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 do over, uh, or or maybe those don't exist. Maybe you have no regrets. Uh, just kind of answer that however you'd like. But I'm really interested in learning from from your weaknesses and how you overcame them. So believe it or not, I'm introverted. <laughs> and um, it pains me to like share personal issues. Uh -huh. And I'm not naturally going into a group um, and glad handing and um, making small talk. I'm not very good at small talk. And so I've been doing this now for 20 years. And 
not to brag, but in the publishing industry, I'm considered the hardest working author. And on the speaking circuit, I'm considered the hardest working speaker. Um, because I will do whatever it takes to meet a commitment for a client. Oftentimes that same client will want me to attend the social the night before or go out and play golf with the CEO. And that's not something that I enjoy doing. I don't enjoy making that small talk with people I don't know. And so I routinely decline. And who knows, um, you know, I could have had great more opportunities if I had engaged in that social aspect, but it's not my strength. I'm not comfortable at it. I don't enjoy it. So I've probably left a lot of opportunities on the table by not participating in the social aspect of business because I'm so single-minded in the performance of that business. I don't uh, spend the time socializing that I should. And I admit it's a weakness of mine. And other people see it as well, but it's who I am and I'm not going to change it. No, that, uh, I appreciate you sharing. And and that, uh, that resonates with me to to some degree because I'm, I, uh, in a lot of ways identify as, as an introvert as well. And, and sometimes those social gatherings, especially small talk, it's stressful to me sometimes, um, uh, where, you know, if I'm giving a presentation or, or speaking or teaching, I don't really get that sort of anxiety, but you know, small talk sometimes stresses me out. So, uh, and the similar thing, if I were to be invited to a social or, or go golfing or do something with, with people that I, I, you know, I don't really know it would, it would also be something that I wouldn't be highly interested in. So I personally resonate uh, with that as so well. It's called self-awareness. Yeah. <laughs> um, yep. And you, if you realize it's a, not a detractor, but if you realize it could be an issue, then then you're and you're aware of it, then you can figure out how to overcome it. Yeah. And how to not snub the people who want you to come socialize yeah. and play golf with them. Yeah. Or or my wife who's extreme extrovert <laughs> where her form of relaxing is and having, you know, and and a, a stress free not a stress free, but her her form of having fun and relaxing is being around people and being out doing things where mine is I'm happy to sit on the couch and stare at a wall. <laughs> So that's relaxing to me. The three-star army general I worked for in the secretary of defense's office, I never got any compliment from him in two years, not even a smile, Mm -hmm. not even a raised lip. He was that introverted and that quiet. I got the feedback from the wife. (laughs) Yeah. And I knew how I was doing based on how she interacted with Mm me. And so um, if she she was that 120, 80 degrees out from him. They, it was the most unusual um, ar- ar- arrangement, but they were complete opposites, but it works yeah. and they're very happy and I'm still friends with both of them. Yeah. Yeah. My wife and I have to, you know, uh, come to agreement a lot. You know, she gives me time to just decompose, but you know, with not a lot of people around and things are quiet, but I also spend a lot of time doing the things that she wants to do and going out and, and having fun, of course, I end up enjoying, especially with our little ones, our little kids. But but I'm similar of how you described yourself, so I, I completely understand. Salam, though, is great at small talk. <laughs> He's it's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> Salam is just very, uh, always has uh, exciting things, and, and I've, I've never had a dull moment with Salam. So, in fact, the other day we drove around all day to do something for work, and 
very easy to talk to. So Salam takes away a lot of that anxiety <laughs> for me when I'm with him because he uh, is easy to talk with, talk to and be with. It was fun. It was it was a, a pleasure. And it was a sunny day compared to today. You're experiencing the true Oregon weather. This is it. Yep. If you look outside today, listeners, it's <laughs> it's rainy and gloomy. Well, after this summer, you should be thankful for the rain. Oh, yes, yes. absolutely. I, I remember those last few months, I was just praying for another rainy day. So mm-hmm. thanks for yeah. thanks for reminding me to be, be grateful for these days. So Chris, just picking up on this topic that you were just talking about relative to uh, being true to yourself, in essence, getting to know who you are, that sense of self-awareness. But sometimes I'm thinking of, of um, let's say, young emerging leaders what advice would you give them? You know, would you give them, uh, would you tell them to, um, you know, to say no to some opportunities or to think about how they can embrace opportunities? And what other advice would you give them? So the advice I would give them is to do what makes you happy. And if you're happy at the level you're at and envision yourself the rest of your life there, that's great. If you want to climb the ladder of success and take on increasingly more complex jobs because you love the challenge, then you need to think about what building blocks you need to put in place to help you achieve your life's dreams. And the basis of that is technical competence. And then it's progressively being able to lead greater numbers of people, greater numbers of projects and customers and clients to get them to go where you want them to go. And if when you demonstrate that success, that's how you get promoted and that's how you climb the ladder of success. But it all depends on what your goals are. Uh, Some people don't want to do that. They're happy with their station in life and they're happy with their family and, and that's okay. I had some people on the ship who didn't want to get promoted. They were happy right where they were. Even though they had more potential that I saw in them, And I said, fine, Uh, then be the best at what you're doing. But a lot of more people, I think, want to, as they become more situationally aware of what's going on as they grow and mature and they take on family responsibilities, they want to climb that ladder of success. And and it's going to be based on their demonstrated ability to lead and retain people. Because at the end of the day, no matter what business you're in, you're in the people business. And if you have high turnover, that's an indication that your people are leaving you as opposed to leaving the organization. So that's, that also comes down to self-awareness that when I lost a sailor, I took it personally to find, and I asked myself what we could have done differently or better to have retained that sailor. And sometimes we couldn't have done anything. But we would still go through that process of discovery to find out if we could have done something so that we don't make the same mistake in the future. Great. Thank you. Um, you know, we've, we've covered uh, quite a bit. Uh, and, and intentionally, uh, you know, talking before, just wanted to get as much, uh, you know, of your insight out of, you, out of you as we could in this short amount of time. But we're coming up on an hour, so I want to wrap us up soon. But the last question that I want to ask at least, and Salam, if you have any others, please, please ask. But I actually want to ask you one of the questions that, that you ask some of your sailors and one that resonated with me, which is what are, what are you most proud of in life? Um, would love to hear 
uh, what you're most proud of in life? Well, um, I didn't start out life at the top rung of the economic ladder. And that to me is not a marker of success, but being able to make a difference in people's lives and getting them to see themselves differently and hopefully spurring them to become better, not only at work, but also at home and in their community. I take a lot of pleasure out of that. And even if, if just one person listens to this podcast and does something differently or views him or herself differently in an effort to continually improve, then I, I, I take great pride in it. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. Salam, you have any other, other questions? Uh, no, I, I really appreciate the time we've had with Mike. Um, this is the third time I had the, the opportunity and the pleasure of listening to you. And uh, Third time in one day. In one day, yes. Third time <laughs> in one day. I think the day. Geneva Convention calls that cruel and unusual punishment. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's been incredibly uh, uh, enlightening, and uh, I learned a lot, and I really appreciate the journey that you've been on and the life experience that you've been on. And I appreciate the fact that you're willing to share it with others. And, um, and, I've, and you shared with us uh, stories about your background and your family and, and your mother. And I find those to be very uplifting and inspirational. So thank you for doing that. My yeah. pleasure. Yeah. And I, I know, you know, this is what you, you do for a living. And, and, uh, and I, I understand. And, but I really appreciate you being willing to share your story. Um, uh, and being vulnerable and, and, and sharing some of the things that, that you've shared just been ins- motivating and inspiring to me and I know also the, to our leaders here in the community and uh, you know hopefully same for any listeners that we have for this episode so appreciate your time I'm honored to be here alrighty well that's, uh, that's all for today uh, thank you for tuning in uh, as always stay safe and we'll catch you next time